Today, the workshop presents The City Wears a Slouch Hat by Kenneth Patchen. The score is for Sound Orchestra by John Cage. The City Wears a Slouch Hat. Hmm. It's beginning to rain a little. We'll just move back here into this doorway. There. That's better. But honest, kid, I didn't mean to say it. You and your apologies, boy. How come every time we get the mother, you have to start Like a lot of audio artists. That's the way it is. John Cage sampled media clips. He used turntables as instruments. Only difference... John Cage did it in 1942. Say, buddy, you got something to spare a fella? I ain't eaten since yesterday. Sure. Here. Thanks. I hate to bother with that. Hey, let's have a look. Ah, it's just a pile of old rags in the alley. Can't be too careful around these old buildings. Yeah. Say, that rain's really beginning to come down. I'm going to duck back under this awning. And a dozen oranges. Mm-hmm. These are the navel. I want them for juice. Oh, a dozen, you say? Yes, and I want a bunch of celery. Three pounds of your best tomatoes. We'd better find another spot. This hour, a hearing voices tribute to John Cage. Born September 5th, 1912, died August 12th, 1992. He's probably the most important post-World War 1945 American composer. It's true. What? Who's John Cage? I have no idea. Oh, John Cage? John Cage? Who's John Cage? I don't know. Anything can be music, and it's up to the individual to decide whether it's music or not. Opening all the windows in uh, Carnegie Hall so that the traffic noise would come in, and, and that was his composition. Twelve or fourteen radios on the stage with people who can randomly adjust the dials to get various sounds. Um, he'd composed a piece for uh, tugboats with whistles and lights. Sound random. He's the guy that did four minutes, 33 seconds, you know, where the pianist walked out onto the stage and sat in front of the, just sat on the piano bench and waited for four minutes and 33 seconds while the, the audience pondered silence and its implications. He sits in front of a piano and just sits there, and it's just silence. Plays nothing and leaves. Uh, and so, um, you know, that kind of uh, music, I don't know. I, but uh, that's, that's John Cage for you. Why are you doing this? Too avant-garde for people, though. They demanded their money back. <laughs> I imagine a lot of people don't understand uh, John Cage. Our ears are now in excellent condition. Thoughts and sound from the original sonic conceptualist John Cage. Few contemporary composers have had the influence of John Cage. From experimental music to minimalism, The Grateful Dead to George Winston, echoes of John Cage continue to resound to this day, more than six decades after he published Sonatas and Interludes for Prepared Piano. 
John Cage was a conceptualizer of sound who turned even silence into music, as he did with his famous piece, 4 minutes and 33 seconds. Open your ears and maybe your windows as we hear an imaginary landscape with John Cage's thoughts and sound. I have a friend, uh, Paul Zukowski, the violinist, who used to um, come and stay where I lived in New York because it was so quiet. But he no longer comes because this is so noisy. For me, it's, it's a great pleasure, though, to hear all the sounds. I find it very just plain musical. That is to say, sounds are, are uh, happening constantly and unpredictably. The, the only thing that really annoys me in an environment is when there is some organized sound, in other words, music. I, th- I think the, the regular beat of music and the sequences of, and repetitions of patterns is what bothers me the most. I'd listen just as I'm listening now to the noises around us. And they are, in fact, my silent peace. It was after I got to Boston that I went into the anechoic chamber at Harvard University. Anyway, in that silent room, I heard two sounds, one high and one low. Afterward, I asked the engineer in charge why, if the room was so silent, I had heard two sounds. He said, the high one was your nervous system in operation. The low one was your blood in circulation. Each time the sonatas and interludes are are played, they sound differently. So instead of being annoyed by all those changes, I accept it, and it's a part of the experience of moving from control to acceptance of what happens. And that involves also moving from um, composition as the making of choices to composition as the asking of questions. Uh, Electronics, of course, is very much a part of our music physically and of our lives generally. And it is what McLuhan said an extension of the central nervous system brings about a situation in which our lives are um, concentrated on the interconnectedness of, uh, of everything. Our ears are now in excellent condition. John Cage's Thoughts and Sound John Cage died from a stroke in August of 1992, but his words and music continue to echo. Ah, this looks well out of the weather. Come up, Jack. There are. Fork over. Here we are. My wallet. My wristwatch. Now, don't try anything fancy. I'd as soon plug you as breathe. I bet you would. Here. I think that's all. You're a smart fella. Well, we've seen you. Just a minute. 
You won't have any use for the cards and the photograph in my wallet. Return them to me, please. Uh, okay. I've no use for them. Here you are. Thank you very much. Good night. So long. Hey, whose picture you got there, your wife? Maybe your mother, huh? No. Okay, Brad, keep your little secret. It's no secret. It's your picture. What? Hey, what are you handing me? Yeah, look for yourself. Jeez. Hey, look, I here, take your money. I don't want to get mixed up in nothing like that. Like what? Don't be a fool. I can't stand all night here in the rain talking to you. Good night. But I don't want... I can't help what you want. <sighs> that wind's beginning to go right through me. What I need is a little good cheer. John Cage's 1948 composition, In a Landscape, performed by Stephen Drury. You heard The City Wears a Slouch Hat, a 1942 radio play by John Cage and poet Kenneth Patchen. And Thoughts and Sound, John Cage, Imaginary Landscapes, from the series Echoes, online at echoes.org. You are hearing voices, and you're hearing music both from John Cage. Off the collection, A Chance Operation, the John Cage Tribute, here's Laurie Anderson talking about Cage's lifetime collaborator, the choreographer Merce Cunningham. At the age of 12, Merce Cunningham went to study dancing with Maud Leon Barrett. She was not his first instructor. He had performed in public a sailor's hornpipe at the age of eight. Mrs. Barrett used to say she had one foot in the grave and jiggled the other in order to stay out. One day, early in summer, Mr. Cunningham drove over to Mrs. Barrett's to pick Merce up. Mr. Barrett was on the roof doing some shingling. Lucille was in the living room pumping the player piano. Leon was in the dining room practicing basketball. A dog that was out of his mind was running in circles, chasing his tail from one room to the other. Merce and Marjorie Barrett were with Mrs. Barrett in the kitchen practicing a tap routine. Instead of making his presence known, Mr. Cunningham turned around and went home alone. John Cage and Merce Cunningham on Collaboration. It was years ago when I first met him in Seattle. I wanted to be in the theater, so I went to school in Seattle, but I went actually to be an actor to study the drama. Merce I liked dancing, so I took uh, went away and became um, part of the, work of the, Graham work of the Martha Graham Dance Company. 
and I, in talking with Merce, uh, persuaded him to make his own work independently of Martha. And I promised that if he did, I would work with him because he liked my music. It seemed to interest me more. And so we began, um, I think the first year that we worked together was in 1942. And I don't know how many pieces I've written for him. I think the first was called Totem Ancestor. Well, I'm trying to think, Totem Ancestor, that will, that's way back. The ballet had always followed music uh, sweetly and docilely. Whereas the modern dance, having a kind of uh, revolutionary character, decided that the music should follow it. So the dance was always made first. And then the uh, composer was brought in to make some sounds to go with it. I thought both of those situations were um, all things that could be improved. That rather than having one of them come first, the other follower, that it would be better to have them both go along together. The uh, collaboration with Cage, of course, it was fairly that strict. Accomplished uh, we worked within uh, what were called rhythmic, rhythmic structures, structure. so we and knew where rhythmic we were structure in, was at, empty. Uh, at certain points. We knew that we, could, we could come together, together, so to speak. Uh, those were the early dances. Uh, eventually, we simply uh, didn't need that and could um, realize that we started at a certain point and we ended at a certain point, so it was only a question of how long it was. When a new dance is made, Merce tells the composer practically nothing about it. Hmm? I will do whatever they want. That is, they're welcome to come and watch as often as they like or if they don't want to, and they only want information. Sometimes they want to know how long it is and, and how many people are in it, and if there are any divisions in the, in the structure, and that I will tell them if I know it myself. The common denominator is time. Cage and I And if you make a, a time that, structure... That dancing and music were time arts, then and they the could dance exist in the same time, but they didn't have to use it up way. the same way. While the music lives in when it, you're walking in its street, way, and curiously you you'll find that the two work together. The sound is occupying the same time in another way. <coughs> Even though you don't so in detail to try to force them to live together. Hmm? To make, uh, and this make the dance separate notion from the music. of the dance and the music and then when it comes Freely together, living it's like a coexistence, the same like two things place happening at the same time. time. They don't have to the depend on each other. Time together. But they, but they have a Rather kind of interdependence simply because they take the interdependence. The of course, comes in has, the um, mind of the person uh, watching and listening. Um, uh, they're willing to put up with two or three things at once, which not so many years ago they would not have been willing to put up. But you have to more and more. Well, we in our work made a situation with a multiplicity of things so that uh, the spectator had somehow to make a choice. He could attempt to be involved with all of it or, or go away and not be involved with any of it or at, at, uh, have to make a selection about what he looked at or listened to, uh, realizing at the same time that there were things he wasn't seeing. But then I thought, well, maybe they might come again. <laughs> The materials go on being the same as they ever were, simply the, the dancers moving their arms and legs and torsos, their heads, and going in different directions. You would think it would get boring, but um, not at all. It, it um, is surprising and deeply moving. It's like asking a question. I try to keep it... Um, mysterious what's happening hmm? rather than understandable you ask yourself a question about something that you don't know and then you attempt to find an answer it's not the only answer but you attempt to find one
Merce Cunningham, and John Cage on collaboration. Interviews conducted by Katie Davis. Merce Cunningham found his mother in Centralia, Washington, to say that after the dance program in Cheney, Washington, he and his company were to be entertained in the home of one of her friends, Mrs. So-and-so. Mrs. Cunningham said, Oh, put your best foot forward. When we got to the party, it turned out that the principal guest was the local distributor for the Chevrolet Company and that our hostess was the wife of the Ford Company's agent. None of the people there had come to the dance program. However, there was very good food and drink, and we stayed fairly late. As we were leaving, Mrs. So-and-so, speaking to Merce Gunningham, said, Thank you for coming and fitting in so well. Anderson from A Chance Operation, the John Cage Tribute. And you heard Jay Allison's piece on Cage, Cunningham, and collaboration. This Cage match continues in a minute on Hearing Voices. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. In 1952, I was asked to write a manifesto about new music. I wrote, instantaneous and unpredictable. Then below, I wrote, nothing is accomplished by writing a piece of music. Ditto for hearing a piece of music. Ditto for playing a piece of music. Then there was a bracket and the words, our ears are now in excellent condition. My signature followed, and that was all there was to it. John Cage from his album Indeterminacy. This is Hearing Voices in the middle of our tribute to the composer. Born in L.A. September 1912. Died in New York August 1992. In the grooves of this record is the sound of John Cage. John Cage, the avant-garde electronic composer, has been astounding audiences with such non-musical sounds as sitting at a piano for four minutes, presenting a silent sonata, designating the opening and closing of a movement by opening and closing the keyboard cover on the piano or by attaching a contact microphone to his Adam's apple and drinking a glass of water. Cage composes by chance, trying to bypass his own ego, taste, self, or whatever it may be called, to create musical happenings with a network of microphones that record and mix sounds such as the slicing of a carrot, a collision on the street, or the closing of a door. The original rendition of Variations 4 was a six-hour performance. 
Variations 4 is a recording of a concert given by John Cage and his associate, David Tudor, at a prominent art gallery on La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles. The evening started with the electronic equipment distributed throughout the gallery in two separate rooms. In each room was a complete sound unit consisting of amplifiers, speakers, radio tuners, tape recorders, mixers, and so on. Many of the speakers and microphones were distributed in odd positions, such as a mic on the street in front of the entrance, so that the sound of the traffic could be inserted into the system at will. In each room was an operator under personal supervision of either John Cage or his associate in this project, David Tudor. The systems were actuated, and the sounds which you're about to witness were the object of the concert. Listen closely, and you will hear the sounds of the audiences, as well as the tinkle of the glasses as the mic over the bar was in use. Records and previous recorded tapes, as well as radio broadcasts, are mixed in during the concert. As this project was such an overwhelming success, Mr. Cage has presented another concert in New York City at the Lincoln Center Philharmonic Hall. This time, a continuation titled Variations 5. The actuating of the sounds, however, were not personally controlled by Mr. Cage. Instead, he had a group of dancers under the direction of Merce Cunningham on stage. And as they danced about, their bodies interrupted many light beams, which in turn operated various electronic gadgetry, producing the sounds. As John Cage has said, Music is all around us, if only we had ears. There would be no need for concert halls. If man could learn to enjoy the sounds that envelop him, for example, at 7th Street and Broadway at 4 p.m. on a rainy day. So now, you will be transported to the Los Angeles famed art row, La Cienega Boulevard, and the John Cage concert, Variations 4.
this the first time you have loved? After, after, after all. Even fun can be scary. Like a roller coaster, roller coaster ride. Such non-musical noises. I live on a street where there are many, many cars and trucks and factories that pump and bang and grind all night and day. It is a miracle that I can write poetry or sleep or talk on the telephone or that my lover will visit me here. There is so much noise. Every few minutes a jet comes in low or a prop job swings down like a kamikaze. There is an airport at the end of my street. The New Age people say that you choose all these things. Choose the cars and trucks and airplanes, me and all of my neighbors. Well, maybe this is true. Maybe we can't live without all this goddamn noise. Maybe I need the noise to write poems, make love, and eat. I'm going to hang a sign out my window that says, More noise, please, or thank you for making noise. Maybe we are the kind of people who need to have what we don't want just to get along to do the basic things. Myself, I could not sleep last night, and I could not close the window either. I tried to tear the window out of its frame and put it in a closed position, banging and ripping with the hammer and a screwdriver, standing on the window ledge in my socks three stories up. But the window wouldn't come out, and the factory was screaming, and the trucks were rumbling, and the whole world was praying for silence, and it was up to me to shut the window, and I couldn't get it down. I was just making more noise. A jet went by, and all the people waved. Thanks, I yelled, as the shifts changed without a lull in production at the big plant across the street. The workers lined up at the bus stop, watching me with my hammer in the window. I put sponge stoppers in my ears, but I can't stand those things for more than a few minutes. Finally, I put my head between two pillows. It is the same every night. I love it. I need it. Without you, I could not live. I would not have written this poem, I yell, the window dangling half on, half off. My grandmother was sometimes very deaf, and other times, particularly when someone was talking about her, not deaf at all. One Sunday she was sitting in the living room directly in front of the radio. She had a sermon turned on so high that it could be heard for blocks around. And yet she was sound asleep and snoring. I tiptoed into the living room hoping to get a manuscript that was on the piano and get out again without waking her up. I almost did it. But just as I got to the door, the radio went off, and Grandmother spoke sharply. John, are you ready for the second coming of the Lord?
John Cage's 1948 Suite for Toy Piano, performed by Stephen Drury. You are hearing voices with this excerpt from the film Ecoute. Listen, directed by Miroslav Sebestik. When I hear what we call music, it seems to me that someone is talking and talking about his feelings or about his ideas of relationships. But when I hear uh, traffic, the sound of traffic here on 6th Avenue, for instance, I don't have the feeling that anyone is talking. I have the feeling that uh, sound is acting. And I love the activity of sound. What it does is it gets louder and quieter, and it gets higher and lower, and it gets longer and shorter. It does all those things which I'm completely satisfied with that. I don't need sound to talk to me. We don't see much difference between time and space. We don't know where one begins and the other stops. So that uh, most of the arts we think of as being in time, and most of the arts we think of as being in space. I, Marcel Duchamp, for instance, began thinking of um, time, I mean thinking of music, as being not a time art, but a space art. And he made it a piece called Sculpture Musicale, which means different sounds coming from different places and lasting, producing a sculpture which is sonorous and which remains. People expect listening to be more than listening. And so sometimes they speak of uh, inner listening um, or the meaning of sound. Uh, When I uh, talk about music, it finally comes to people's minds that I'm talking about sound that doesn't mean anything. Uh, that is not inner, but is just outer. And they say, these people who understand that finally say, you mean it's just sounds, thinking, that for something to just be a sound is to be useless. Whereas I love sounds, just as they are. And I have no need for them to be anything more than what they are. I don't want them to be psychological. I don't want a sound to pretend that it's a bucket or that it's a president or that it's in love with another sound. (laughs) I just want it to be a sound. Uh, And I'm I'm not so stupid either. There was a, a German philosopher who's very well known, Immanuel Kant. And he said there are two things that um, don't have to mean anything. One is music and the other is laughter. (laughs) Don't have to mean anything that is in order to give us very deep pleasure. You know that, don't you? The sound experience, which I prefer to all others, is the experience of silence. And the silence almost everywhere in the world now is is, uh, traffic. If you listen to Beethoven or to Mozart, you see that they're always the same. But if you listen to traffic, you see it's always different. When I try to find in the past something which um, oh, I don't know what to say, but something uh, which I love.
I, I don't mean to make any distinction between my own past and the past of musical culture. I, I think that what is most invigorating for me is the music that has not yet been written. I want something I don't yet know. And I do my best to make each moment uh, like that, something that I'm not familiar with. There's a re remark uh, by Marcel Duchamp, which I love very much. He states it as a, as a goal, to reach the impossibility of transferring from one like image to another, the memory imprint. We don't have to have tradition if we somehow free ourselves from our memories. Then, each thing that we see is new. It's as though we had become tourists and that we were living in countries that were very exciting because we don't know them. I can't tell anybody how to listen or how to look. I certainly can't tell them what to remember. Particularly when I don't want to remember anything myself. If I look at a Coca-Cola bottle and then look at another Coca-Cola bottle, I want to forget the first Coca-Cola bottle in order to see the second Coca-Cola bottle as being original. And it is original because it's in a different position in space and time and light is shining on it differently so that no two Coca-Cola bottles are the same. Every morning, Merce Cunningham does his yoga. He is self-taught by means of books he collected on the subject. Aware of the intimate connection of body and mind, and not having a yogi's assistance, he proceeds with caution. Once, while breathing deeply in the lotus position, he noticed that an unfamiliar force seemed to be rising up his spine. He changed his mind very shortly was standing on his feet Ruined choirs come. Go. 
John Cage Experiences Number 1, performed by a group called Voices and Instruments. You heard Ken Nordine with A Cage Went in Search of a Bird and Laurie Anderson's Merce Cunningham Stories, both off the collection A Chance Operation, the John Cage Tribute. I'm Barrett Golding, and there's links to everything you heard this hour at hearingvoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.